Apparently, a vaccine is the only way out of COVID. Nah, I don't buy it. In this episode, we explore the other exit routes we're not being told about. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Hope you're all well and not losing your marbles in this COVID-19 pandemic. I I do apologize for being a bit late on uploading uh, my next podcast. Uh, I've I've been busy and had a few things going on, but uh, I'm back and uh, hope you enjoy what I have in store. So... The mainstream media's narrative on how COVID-19 ends has been through a vaccine. Teams of scientists around the world are racing to develop a vaccine to end the COVID-19 pandemic. Hundreds of volunteers are set to trial a new vaccine against coronavirus. In the global race for a coronavirus vaccine, Russia said today... In other words, as soon as we can get a safe and effective vaccine, approved and widely distributed... All across the world, we can then and only then go back to our normal lives and this pandemic nightmare will be over. Is it just me or is the idea of holding our freedom hostage to a vaccine a pretty crazy idea that we've been forced to accept? Am I the only one who thinks this? Yes, yes, sure, you got me. I'm an anti-vaxxer. Better go tell the thought police. No, of course, a safe and effective vaccine would be fucking fantastic. But in reality, nobody knows how long that will take, if we'll get one at all. All forecasts right now are about as accurate as fortune cookies. And as The Daily reports... It's worth noting that that year to a year and a half timeline is already extremely fast. The current record for developing a vaccine is actually four years for the mumps vaccine. You heard that right. Four years is the quickest we've been able to make and distribute a vaccine. I feel like this info is very conveniently left out of the mainstream media narrative. And I don't know about you, but riots on the street are probably a lot more likely than people accepting four more years of lockdown reopening, lockdown, reopening. So I thought I'd dedicate this episode to considering the alternative ways out of COVID. Of course, nobody really knows. Anybody who tells you definitively is lying. But there are some pretty interesting possibilities that don't involve waiting on a vaccine. And yes, I do bring some positive news. So fingers crossed. The first of those is herd immunity, a term that's now become pretty ugly and politicized. But as Professor Sunetra Gupta, a leading epidemiologist at Oxford University, says, it's just a technical term for the proportion of the population that needs to be immune in order to prevent the disease from spreading, which is the central concept in vaccinations. Now, the herd immunity threshold that you usually hear being uh, thrown around is at least 60%. That is, at least 60% of the population that needs to be immune to the virus before it dies off. Do some quick math and you realize no country is anywhere close to that. But this threshold assumes that every member in the community has the same susceptibility to the virus and mixes randomly with everyone else. And it's really just a threshold used for vaccines. 
But as epidemiologists point out, natural herd immunity isn't random because humans are heterogeneous. What does that mean? It basically means we all have different susceptibility and exposure to the virus, whether that's because we're less connected to the community or simply have better immune systems that can fight off the virus. And because of this, the virus actually spreads selectively, whereby the more susceptible and exposed members of the community are more likely to become infected first and thus become immune. Unfortunately, some of those sadly die. But what this does, it removes the susceptible population in the early stages of the pandemic. And then what this does, it slows down epidemic growth and accelerates immunity in the population. And that is actually potentially really great news. A team led by Gabriela Gomez from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine has suggested that as low as only 10 to 20% of the population needs to be infected before this pandemic dies down. In a subsequent paper, her team predicts that England, Belgium, Portugal and Spain will obtain herd immunity between July and October. And crazily enough, this threshold seems to be supported by real-world evidence in previous COVID hotspots, uh, where cases and deaths have now fallen considerably, and that they're now approaching zero. For example, New York's antibody expression is at 21.6%, Stockholm's is at 16%, a test in Northern Italy showed seroprevalence between 13 to 14%. Uh, and Germany's epicenter, Gangkelt in Heinsberg, uh, apologies for the pronunciation, also peaked out at 15%. In fact, no community has passed 25% antibody level. And even if this isn't the end for those regions, epidemiologists point out that even imperfect immunity would help. Joel Miller, a mathematical modeler at La Trobe University in Australia, says definitely the disease would not spread as well if it gets back into New York. For London, Professor Sinetra Gupra believes... I think that the epidemic has largely come and is on its way out um, in this country. And on top of this, other studies have argued that many of us, around 20 to 50%, might have pre-existing immunity to COVID due to something known as T-cells, which are cells that built up to fight pre-existing coronaviruses, including four that frequently cause common colds. And at this point, it is worth noting that the Spanish flu ended, or rather was contained, after only a third of the population became infected. As always with these things, I have a few important caveats to stress. The first is that not all researchers agree that the herd immunity threshold is at at this 10 to 20% rate. Most researchers believe it falls anywhere between 20 to 60%. Second caveat is that these are just forecasts, which, as I mentioned before, you always need to take with a grain of salt. And caveat number three, the decline of cases and deaths in these cities, such as New York and Stockholm, could merely just coincide with the weather. Which brings me to the second way COVID-19 could end, which is that it simply just becomes something we live with and need to monitor every flu season. The theory is that the virus spreads more easily in the winter because one... The stability of the virus is far less when the temperature goes up, but particularly humidity seems to be important. That's Professor Carl Hennigan from Oxford University. The lower the humidity, actually the more stable the virus is in the atmosphere and on surfaces. 
So when we compare to other countries, what we did see in the Northern Hemisphere, when the conditions were right, rapid spread, transmission and impact on deaths. Two, people spend less time outside. We are more outside, more ventilation, which also may have an impact to say our viral load is reduced at this time of year. And that's also important then on potential virulence. And less clear, but other touted reasons include number three, we have less vitamin D. So for instance, your immune system isn't as strong. That's the vitamin D argument. And four, immune systems are weaker for certain people. You may have had other co-infections. You may have just had an infection. So your lymphocytes are not primed. You're not ready to fight off another infection. Now, this theory would also seem to explain the drop of cases in the Northern Hemisphere and be part of the reason why there's an uptick in Victoria, Australia, putting aside horny security guards who couldn't help themselves. Now, it's interesting to see what happens as we move into the Southern Hemisphere. They tend to have outbreaks now at this point. Their January, in effect, is happening right now. So that's why we're seeing down below in places like Australia suddenly having outbreaks that are making the viruses reappearing. And that probably is to do with the stability of the viruses, more so on surfaces than actually in the air. Rupert Beale, a group leader at the Crick Institute Cell Biology of Infection Laboratory, says the most likely outcome is that COVID-19 becomes the fifth seasonal coronavirus, noting, I'll be genuinely surprised if that's not where we end up. Now, this idea of living with it, controlling outbreaks as they arise, and protecting the vulnerable isn't a crazy idea. Again, Professor Sunetra Gupta from Oxford has said, The other interesting issue that I've suddenly realised with this particular threat is that people are treating it like an external disaster, like a hurricane or a tsunami, as if you can batten down the hatches and it will be gone eventually. That is simply not correct. The epidemic is an ecological relationship that we have to manage between ourselves and the virus. But instead, people are looking at it as a completely external thing. And you know what? I have to agree with her. I think many of us have fallen victim to a narrative that says there's going to be a Hollywood superhero, some jacked up dude on steroids who's going to come in and save the day when in reality, we just need to learn how to live with it. Even Nassim Taleb, someone who's a big advocate of the precautionary principle and someone who I've previously referred to in the pod, has argued for something very similar recently. So what's the protocol? You said we should just follow the same protocol with every one of them. Mechanism for quarantine, reduction of, uh, and identify super spreaders. You don't have to lock down things. In this case, it's very easy. Super spreaders were subways, elevators, and uh, big, uh, big uh, gatherings like the the weddings. Yeah. You don't need to bring cases to zero. You just want to make sure they don't overwhelm your system. And they don't uh, that they don't uh, collapse. Uh, I mean, they 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 don't collapse your infrastructure. You see, yeah, well, that's more than that. And though, then I... also, and also, that's the first thing. And then the other one is, if if a pandemic would be imploding, just like the the the, the plague or the Spanish flu. Naturally, when when it uh, is, uh, I don't believe in herd immunity as much as in uh, uh, reduced connectivity. Which brings me to the third way out of this. Testing. 
which at this point remains a huge issue, both in terms of capacity and speed of results. Well, it turns out that several groups of scientists, one at Yale and another in Jerusalem, Israel, have come out with COVID testing breakthroughs. The Yale team has come out with a saliva test called Saliva Direct, now approved by the FDA, which comes to $10 per sample and has a highly sensitive testing results, similar to the NP swabbing that we currently use. And as for the Jerusalem team, they've invented a one-second coronavirus test, which achieves a 95% success rate. Bear in mind, this is only initial data, so they still need to verify verify it with further tests, but it shows huge promise. Think about the ramifications. You could do away with quarantine, do away with restrictions on travel. Pretty much everything could go back to normal on the simple condition that these tests were widely available, everyone had one, and you would need to potentially show a daily negative test result wherever you go. But then that would give you access to everything that we could do prior to COVID being in our lives. So this is very exciting. Definitely watch this space. It definitely could be an exit route before a vaccine becomes available, if at all that ever happens. But the thing about testing is, yes, it's great at identifying who has COVID, but then what? They still need to be treated, especially if they're immunocompromised or if they're elderly, they're going to potentially develop a serious condition. So this is the fourth potentially non-vaccinated way out of COVID-19, and it's definitely the most controversial, which is treatment. You may have seen a viral video of a Texan doctor called Dr. Stella Emanuel. They think I'm dangerous because I'm speaking truth. Who, along with other doctors, went to Washington, D.C., and they had a press conference where... The- Claiming without evidence that there's a cure for COVID-19. And that cure is a certain regimen, including the drug hydroxychloroquine. Now, as always, I would have loved to have played the audio clip of that video for for your consumption, but Big Tech has taken this down. I can't find it anywhere. For some reason, it's unfit for, for citizen consumption. It's unsafe, uh, and so we can't find it anywhere. But this doctor was immediately crucified for her comments Mainstream media latched onto her beliefs about demons to discredit her message about hydroxychloroquine. It's off the beaten path to say that demons are sleeping with you overnight. But demons are sleeping with people. Are they? Yes! Demons exist! Which, mind you, is just an example of an ad hominem fallacy. It doesn't actually address her claims about the drug, but just uses a different topic, uh, her views on a different topic to discredit her overall message. But in saying that, it's very interesting to discuss and an important disclaimer, I ain't no doctor and so nothing I say here should be taken as medical advice. Please see your doctor for that. But there are a few interesting things to discuss. The first is context. So hydroxychloroquine has actually been around for decades. It's an anti-malaria drug. Um, It's since become politicized because a couple of months ago, President Trump revealed that he supported hydroxychloroquine. He even told the press that he regularly takes it. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. 
Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. And if it's not good, I'll tell you right, I'm not going to get hurt by it. It's been around for 40 years for malaria, for lupus, for other things. I take it. Frontline workers take it. A lot of doctors take it. Excuse me. A lot of doctors take it. I take it. Now, I hope to not be able to take it soon because, you know, I hope they come up with some answer. But I think people should be allowed to. I got a letter from... And so because Trump said this, the media is always going to be biased in their coverage of the drug. That's point number one. Point number two, the FDA's banning of hydroxychloroquine along with the WHO advising against it resulted from trials that were looking at whether hydroxychloroquine was effective in treating hospitalized COVID patients. These studies showed that hydroxychloroquine didn't result in fewer deaths and had some serious side effects, which seem like pretty solid medical reasons to advise against its use and even ban it in certain places. Now, these events have also resulted in other places, for example, like Victoria and Queensland and Australia, to ban the drug. But the big mystery is why these trials, which covered hydroxychloroquine-only treatment for hospitalized COVID patients, have been used to justify banning hydroxychloroquine altogether, such as taking hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc and some antibiotics, And another example is in treating high-risk outpatients. In other words, people with COVID who are not yet hospitalized. Now, this is the point made by Harvey Reich, who's a Yale epidemiologist who argues in the American Journal of Epidemiology, pretty credentialed, I would have thought, that people with a medical need can be treated early and successfully with hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and antibiotics such as azithromycin, or doxycycline. His point is that COVID has two stages. The first is a flu-like illness that won't kill you. And this is the stage where he advises his regimen of hydroxychloroquine for high-risk patients. Funnily enough, this is also how the crazy witch doctor recommended hydroxychloroquine. Yes! Demons exist! But if these patients aren't treated, they'll progress into it. COVID's second stage, which causes severe pneumonia and is how people actually die from COVID. Dr. Reich agrees that at this stage, as the FDA and WHO have said, hydroxychloroquine isn't effective and does have side effects. For me, this raises two questions. Question number one, is it safe? Well, to paraphrase Reese, the FDA has no information about adverse effects in early outpatient use of hydroxychloroquine. The only info about adverse effects that it has comes from my article. And in that article, I showed hydroxychloroquine has been extremely safe in more than a million users. Question number two, is it effective in early use for high-risk patients? Again, to paraphrase Reese. Every randomized controlled trial to date that has looked at early outpatient treatment has involved low-risk patients, patients who are not generally treated. So few of the controlled patients have required hospitalization that significant differences, of course, were not found. However, there's one exception, a study from Spain, which included high-risk nursing home patients, and guess what? The medications cut the risk of a bad outcome in half. So it is bizarre that the FDA would ban hydroxychloroquine in all settings when in fact they only have evidence that it doesn't work in hospitalised settings. Dr Harvey Reich speculates, I stress, speculates that the failure 
to accept hydroxychloroquine is to do with corporate interests. Big Pharma provides a third of FDA's funding, yet hydroxychloroquine, being a generic drug, isn't a cash cow in the same way that, say, a new patented treatment or vaccine could be for Big Pharma, hence the reluctance to approve it. And, you know, it would be one thing if Dr. Harvey Reich and the witch doctor from Texas were... Yes! Demons exist! ...were the only people who believe this. But according to Stephen Hatfield, a veteran virologist and adjunct assistant professor at the George Washington University Medical Center, there are now 53 studies that show positive results of hydroxychloroquine in COVID infections. And not to mention that the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which admittedly is a conservative association with over 5,000 members, has now sued the FDA over its interference with hydroxychloroquine. So watch this space. And one final point on hydroxychloroquine, it's not necessarily about the drug, but more with how it's being treated in the media, which is there's this automatic label, this anti-science label that's applied to anyone who brings up anything about hydroxychloroquine as if they're some crackpot conspiracy theorists claiming that these people don't believe in science. But what these people are failing to mention is that science, in fact, is all about falsifying consensus. It's all about proving what we know to be wrong and having a scientific basis for that conclusion. So the idea that you can ban, repress, ostracize so-called heterodox or minority views is, in fact, anti-science. That's just a side note has nothing really to do with hydroxychloroquine, but more to do with the media's uh, portrayal of it. So that's my final point. And that's where I wrap up today. As always, thanks for listening. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favor. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There. Too easy. See you next time.